can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The big electron, the big electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. And we're so glad that you're here with us on this lovely Mother's Day. Day? <laughs> Holiday? Something or other. Uh, yeah, we have we actually have a, a theme show uh, in regards to Mother's Day, but um, I think we have to say it before Absolutely. we get started. Happy Mother's Day, because I know Day. most of our listeners are mothers. <laughs> Um, with that, I'd just like to remind you that if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by calling here on studio at 573-882-8262. You can also text us at that same number. You can find us on Facebook where we are, The Big Electron, or you can email us at thebigelectron.kcuu at gmail.com. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Such so, a mouthful. Yes. But contact uh, us. <laughs> yes. If you have any questions. And we'll get started. We have a, a guest with us today. Um, he's a professor here at MU. Um, we'll let you introduce yourself in just a few seconds. Um, and like we said, we are we're talking about um, the theme of the show. It's it's in regards to Mother's Day, and and we figure that you know mothers bring us to life. And so why can't we talk about pre life, prebiotic life, maybe something or other? <laughs> the ultimate mother. Yeah. Some, something like that. So with that, uh, I'll hand it over to Professor Burke. Hello. Hello, indeed. Uh, I'm Donald Burke Aguero, um, and sometimes Donald Burke, sometimes Donald Burke Aguero. Um, I am indeed a professor of microbiology at the University of Missouri, and I have also appointments in biochemistry and in biological engineering. And all of that comes to play uh, in thinking about the theme that we're talking about today, which is the origin of life. Real quick before awesome. <laughs> we get into that, do you want to tell us real quick how you got into science? Oh, man. It, yeah, so um, I actually grew up here in Missouri. Oh, okay. About uh, 30, 35 miles from here in a little town of Fayette. Oh, I know where Fayette and, is. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, graduated from there in 81. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I was already hooked long before finishing high school. Um, I had I had older brothers and a sister who were who were constantly teaching me many, many, many things. They ended up having at least five parents. Um, oh, that's good. In that sense, and so uh, the idea about learning stuff and learning stuff and learning stuff was always just a fascinating idea to me. Mm -hmm. You know, they were off at. Um, uh, in high school when I was uh, just starting school, and they were off in college when I was in middle school. And, as, uh, they're a big inspiration for me. Mm -hmm. That's how I got started in science. Uh, lots of running around in the in the fields and chasing my dog around, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, 
But by the time I got to college, I really, really wanted to study things that would connect all the way from how the universe got started to how life got started to how we got to be how we are now to where is it going and mm -hmm. just try to connect all of it together. Um, and that's been sort of my lifelong passion ever since then. That's awesome. I, it, it seems like such a big picture with mm -hmm. so many different parts to it. It's, it's like you want to know it all, but you have to focus on smaller bits, right? Well, you know, to make a living, you can't do all of it at once. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, have a, I have been very, very fortunate in getting into a field of science that allows me to hit a lot of those things. If not me being the one doing it, then at least hanging around people who do. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about origin of life things here on this planet, I'm mostly thinking about a very small slice of the overall puzzle. Mm-hmm. But there are other people who think about it that are at the same conferences that I go to that are thinking about, well, what about other planets and other solar systems? And so I get to hang out with astronomers and, oh, and yeah. you know, learn about the new missions before they're even, you know, uh, out there being launched. Wow, that's cool. Oh, it's great. Yeah. And, you know, geologists and, uh, and just people studying many, many different things. So thinking about your little sliver, what, what is that exactly? Can you dive in a little deeper into um, origin of life research? Origin of life research, <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so when we think about uh, how genetics works, how our genes work in, um, in modern life, you know, we think about you know, we have a gene for blue eyes or a gene for brown eyes and that sort of thing. What we're really talking about most of the time are strands of DNA molecules that contain information. And that information gets decoded and gets read out uh, through other molecules in the cells to make us be the way that we are. Um, um, but you can think of, of those DNA molecules as just being strings of information you know, A, G, C, T, and you can write it all down. It's kind of like a computer code. And some of what you would learn by thinking about it that way is really, really useful, has good predictive value, we say in science. But it's also a molecule. And, and thinking of it like a chemist who would think about molecules, you think about it in a whole different way. Mm -hmm. So instead of just being a string of information, these... DNA molecules are things. They're both strings and things. Mm -hmm. um, and as things, they fold up into structures and they have chemical properties. And so what my lab does is to look at what those chemical properties are that nucleic acids can have, mm -hmm. how we can use the various tools at our disposal to evolve new functions for them, and how we can um, convince biology to make good use of those new functions. I mean, it ranges all the way from trying to develop new, new therapies for, for HIV AIDS or for detecting cancer cells on the, on the biomedical side, but also to how life could have gotten started in the first place on mm -hmm. the origin of life side. All of it tied together by the question of what are the chemical capabilities of nucleic acids 
um, both as a molecule and as it relates to biology. I see. So when you talk about how, um, you know, why are we interested, I guess here's my question, but um, you're talking about like we're, we're very interested in this small part of being able to study how we came to, to life. Um, of course, life billions of years ago or millions mm -hmm. of years ago didn't look the way that it did right now. Um, so why, why are we interested in finding how we came to life? Why are we interested in studying the origin of life? Right. No, that's, a, that's an excellent question. So um, I'll, I'll give you a very different answer now from what I would have given you, I don't know, 20 years ago. Um, there was a time when, well, actually, let's go, let's go way back. Uh, when was this? I think, I think it was in the late 60s, but I'm not sure, actually certain when this was. Frank Drake came up with this famous equation mm -hmm. called the Drake Equation, which uh, mm -hmm. is, has frankly been the organizing tool for my entire career. <laughs> uh, if, if, if you actually know the Drake Equation inside and out, you, you've, you can kind of t t have, uh, do a roadmap of how I've approached uh, <laughs> my <laughs> professional aspirations. But what the Drake Equation does is it says, hey, we got a whole bunch of stars out there. And if you start whittling down, you know, what fraction of them have planets and what fraction of those planets will be in a good orbit that lets it support life and, if, and what fraction of those that could support life actually do support life and then of those that do support life, what fraction of them have continued to evolve. You just keep on going. Eventually, uh, uh, E.T. is trying to phone home. And then, you know, you, can, you kind of do the math on that and, and plug in numbers. The problem is we have, have no idea what those numbers are. Mm -hmm. And... Um, well, we know how many stars there are in our uh, the Milky Way galaxy. There's about 400 billion. Mm -hmm. And we know roughly how many galaxies there are. There's another 100 billion of those. And so you can do some math on that. It's a whole bunch of stars. Um, but up until not too long ago, we really had no idea what fraction of them had planets. Mm -hmm. We didn't know whether our planetary system was the only one that was out there or if there were others at all. And if there were others, how similar to ours are they or not? It's really just been in the last 10 or 15 years where this part of this field has completely exploded. Um, there have been new technologies brought online, new observing platforms brought online. And next thing you know, we've got a whole lot of planets just mm -hmm. in our little tiny corner of the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, maybe, I don't know, one or two percent of the whole Milky Way galaxy that we've been looking at here locally, we've already found over 2,000 planets. Wow. And the, the ones that are more similar to Earth are the harder ones to see. It doesn't mean they're not there. They're just harder to see. Mm -hmm. And so we find the ones that are less like Earth first because they're easier to see. <laughs> um, and And... But and we just becoming, miss Pluto out of our yeah, well, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we, we find some planets, we lose some planets. Yeah, right? <laughs> you know, give and take. Yeah. So, so part of the reason why we study origin of life now is because mm, it's becoming more clear than ever that there are a whole lot of candidates out there mm -hmm. where there are planets that are enough like Earth that you could at least imagine Earth-like life mm -hmm. living there. Now, 
would it live there now because it arose there on its own? Would it live there a few thousand years from now when we finally get there, but there's no life of its own there? We have absolutely no clue right now. I think we will know from astronomy long before we know by voyages and, mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the landing there. But Absolutely. we really want to understand what are the rules for, um, um, for making life from scratch. And, um, you know, sometimes I get in this kind of conversation with people of a religious inclination and they say, well, we already know the answer to that. God did it. And, you know, I, I don't have any problem with that answer, but my question for them is, okay, fine. Do you know how? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, I mean, if you're going to ask, uh, why is the sky blue? Well, because God made it blue. Well, that, that's not a non-answer, but I'll bet there's more of an answer to that. You mm -hmm. can look at the sun and how it interacts with the atmosphere and the light, and you can get an answer from that. That for those of us who want to dig deeper, there are deeper answers. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to get at for origin of life questions. Mm -hmm. What are the rules that make life come into existence? Um, sometimes we're thinking in terms of how did it happen here on Earth, and sometimes it's more general. How can it happen? Mm -hmm. It's the how can it happen rules that free us from having to think about what actually happened on, on Earth. Yeah, But it also sounds really challenging to just come up with something that could happen in theory, even if we have, you know, that's not what happened here. Yes, but coming up with something that seems to work really well by first principles or just thinking about it on top of your head or writing it on paper, say, hey, I bet this could have happened, uh -huh. uh, is also not very satisfying to the experimentalist in me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, we try really hard to push past the idea of, of considering the problem solved just because the answer that we've said out loud makes sense. Making sense is one thing. Showing that it actually works is a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. So if you were to tell me, for example, I think that maybe there was a time when nucleic acid molecules like RNA or DNA or things like it could have done the same kind of things that modern protein catalysts, enzymes, mm -hmm. do in our modern cells. I'd say, okay, that's a nice idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but can you show me one? Mm -hmm. And when I started graduate school, the answer was, Nope, <laughs> because they didn't exist. Um, and then they did exist, not, not because they magically appeared, but because we found them in nature. Having found them in nature, not long after that, we learned ways to develop them in the laboratory, artificial ones that have never existed in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of mm -hmm. the uh, areas that my lab focuses on. So... Um, I'm a little bit familiar with the, the RNA world hypothesis and that, you know, maybe RNA was the first, the first thing. And that could be because it is capable of um, encoding information as well as doing things. But I don't, I want to know, what did it do? What was the point of <laughs> it moving things around or, you know, the there had to be some sort of pressure that said, like, oh, this is good. Keep doing that. Right. Oh. So uh, has You're anyone... such a biologist. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I think of origin of life, I think of, like, oh, how these two things came together. How did it bond? And oh, yeah, stuff no. Stuff like that. No. I, I want to know why. And <laughs> then how it did the next step. It, there's always this, like, dichotomy in my <laughs> research between, like, life and, and science. <laughs> and, and I know that there's no difference, but it's, like, to me, science is 
bonds breaking and reforming. Right. And then I'm like, oh, and then that becomes alive. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. Somehow. Of <laughs> course, there's like 20 degrees well, of separation, but you know. Right. That's, that's from a chemist's point of view. Yes. From a biologist's point of view, like myself, there's a difference between science and alchemy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you hit the nail on the head with that one. Yeah, the difference between science and alchemy. Yeah, so you know what? Everything that just now got said is exactly what happens when I go to Origin of Life conferences. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we add a lot of techno babble in the meantime, but it comes down to what you just said, that, that you've, got, you've got really concrete things that you can demonstrate in the laboratory. Like this chemical reaction will happen under these conditions even though life is not helping it happen. Like uh, if you... Yeah, you know, uh, the famous 1953 Stanley Miller experiment where he had a, a, mm -hmm. a chamber full of some, some, some gases like ammonia and, and, uh, and, and, and methane and, and, some, and some water, and he sparked it with some simulated lightning. Mm -hmm. He had uh, you know, spark discharge to give it the energy that, it might have exp uh, uh, that a primitive atmosphere might have experienced. And lo and behold, after a, after a few uh, minutes or hours or days of being zapped, um, amino acids appeared in in the in the in the water down below, and um, and so that argument has been used to say, you know what, you don't need life to make the raw materials of life. The raw material the raw materials of life come into existence on their own. Okay, that's solid. That's science. That's not alchemy. That's, that's, that's chemistry. <laughs> but then the alchemy comes in when people stop right there and say, ah, well, now that we have the parts, the magic of evolution takes us the rest of the way, and suddenly you have, you know, mm -hmm. um, life. Giraffes. <laughs> Thank you. I had a different example in mind, but I... I <laughs> us? Awesome humans? Well, there's, there's a particular human I was going to call out, but I think I'll leave my political uh, leanings aside. So we know now, right, that uh, we hear kids get taught this and, and we've been taught this, that DNA is the reason, you know, it's pretty much what guides life mm -hmm. right now, right? Uh, but we're talking about RNA, Right. And and how RNA back then used to be, well, we think that it was like the molecule that gave life and then eventually it evolved to DNA, things like that. So why, um, I know you studied RNA, um, so why, why, is there an answer for why RNA started and why did it evolve to DNA? And wow. you're like, no. Okay. So, so, so let me, let me, let me use that question as a way to get back to what Madeline was asking just a minute ago, because I actually forgot to get back to your question. Um, you mentioned the RNA world mm -hmm. and, and one way of, of describing what is meant by this phrase RNA world is that if you, if you take, if you take modern life and you think, you know, what do we all have in common it's that you know the genetic information is stored in DNA, and that's what you were saying, Jackie. That that, and 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 um, and that the information that's in there gets read out into RNA, which is a transient thing to carry the information through the process to end up making proteins. That's sort of like what's mm -hmm. sometimes referred to as the central dogma of of biology. biology. From that's a 1968 term invented, I think, by. Uh, 
Was it Francis Crick? Or Watson. I think was it was Watson? Crick. I can't remember. I one know it's those, one of those two. One of those two guys <laughs> yes. coming up with this phrase, a central dogma. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking. I've gotten too used to Google to, to help me out with these things. So look up central dogma and then, uh, yeah, who came up with this term? Okay, fine. So so this is this is the idea, that the, that the information is stored in DNA. And so you've got three different... It was Francis class. Crick. Yeah, what? Thank you. There you go. Google to the rescue. Um, <laughs> so you got three different types of molecules, DNA and RNA and protein. Mm -hmm that are needed to carry out the genetic, uh, uh, the flow of genetic information in, in modern cells. And um, one of the ideas about the RNA world is that you could simplify the whole thing and not have to invent three different classes of molecules if you only had to invent one. Mm -hmm. Well, no one's ever found a way to get a lot of different kinds of information encoded in protein so that you could pass that in a heritable way from one molecule to another mm -hmm. uh, so proteins is kind of like a poor candidate for for an early genetic molecule um, dna as we find it in modern biology uh, is actually made from rna that is the building blocks of dna are made from the building blocks of rna so you might think rna could have been more ancestral in that sense it got made mm -hmm. first and then you had to invent new tools to convert it over in, in um, into dna mm -hmm. Uh, and also modern DNA is typically found in a double-stranded form that is, you know, all the nucleotides are busy. They're all paired with other nucleotides. Whereas RNA tends to be made as a single strand, which gives it the freedom to fold up any way it wants. Um, and, you know, it's, well, anywhere that, that its laws of chemistry will allow it to. <laughs> uh, so... So we've 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 come up with well we and several others have have come up with ways of uh, of um, finding new functions for these RNA molecules, but then we get back to the question you're asking, Madeline, about uh, what reactions do you want it to do? Yeah. And how do you get from those chemical reactions to biology? And frankly, that's where the field is right now. Okay. Uh, we've. We've learned many ways of building these artificial RNA molecules. For some reason, people have not been very quick to try to move them from test tubes into cells. Hmm. And that's, I think, where the field really needs to go, is mm -hmm. to, is to, um, to understand how we can build new kinds of biology uh, using these artificial component parts made from the RNA. Mm -hmm. And I think that was my my follow up question of sorts. Uh, is that sort of what we're looking for, like how RNA move onto DNA, or just any other type of life that slash life, well, in quotes, life um, existed, you know, or am yeah. I completely missing? No, no, no. You're absolutely <laughs> right on track. Uh, so uh, let, me, let me say it a different way. How do we know when we've done something useful? Yeah, that's a great question. Oh. So, I've been trying to so, find out how I mean, to do something useful. You were suggesting one specific useful thing, yeah. which is to invent uh, to invent DNA. And um, another useful thing could be to invent proteins. Mm -hmm. And then once you have figured out how to make proteins, you can make different proteins and many different proteins. The next thing you know, the proteins take over, and there's a revolution, and the RNA is kicked out as being the official. Uh, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> being the, and and that's that's referred to as protein takeover. Uh, okay. Uh, in the field and. Ooh. and um, so, but so one of the big arguments we have in the field is how sophisticated does the system that invented proteins have to be? 
can mm-hmm. you invent proteins from just an absolutely minimal thing that you can't even call alive? So that you had your first thing that you would call alive when you have the ability to make proteins. Or was it already living? Mm-hmm. Did you already mm-hmm. have something that might have sort of somewhat resembled cells that maybe carried out lots of different metabolic reactions? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's where we completely fall apart is that mm-hmm. we have the we have the individual tools to do a lot of different things, but we are just now starting to recognize the opportunities to string them together to make to make networks of of things. Now, none of this is going to crawl out of the tube and come and come uh, <laughs> uh, uh, come after like your potato salad. Value, yeah. It's no Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, uh, we're it's just nowhere near that. Um, I guess it. I don't know if. It makes me question what the definition of life is. At Absolutely. what point is it life? And I, I'm, I feel like that's an impossible question to answer. But. Well, you know, it, it kind of is in some respects. But at the same time, it is precisely what we're trying to define that mm-hmm. we are looking for. Uh, when you're thinking about you know, NASA missions, you're looking for life, well, what are you actually looking for? Right. And if you're trying to think about the origin of life, what is the thing whose origin you're trying to look for? Mm-hmm. So the field has grappled with that question, mm-hmm. what is life, for a long time. Um, mm, I'm going to mangle the definition that NASA uses on this from their astrobiology site, um, which is something along the lines of, it's a self-sustaining chemical system capable of um, of inheritance. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you, you, oh. you have a... You, oh, you, the inheritance that's, that's a keyword. It yeah. really is a, a very key concept. So you could have chemical reactions that are self-sustaining for a while, right. but they won't necessarily uh, pass that information on to their progeny molecules. Mm-hmm. As soon as you can pass the information to progeny molecules... Mm-hmm. And so those molecules can now do similar things, especially if you have the capability of making mistakes along the way. Yeah. So that now some of those mistakes will be worse and they'll do the job less well, but some of them might be better or even find new things unrelated to the original task that would allow them to explore strange new worlds. Wow. Seek out new rocks and new... Uh, oh <laughs> I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, so I have a question to follow up on that. Um, I assume if this model is ends up being the correct one, the RNA world, it's, this was, correct me if I'm wrong, but a while ago that this would have been on this planet. Oh, if you, <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, so let's put a time scale in there. Um, we can constrain it from both ends. We know that it wasn't uh, in the 1900s <laughs> or 1800s or 1700s. So we have to go back a little bit farther, start adding some zeros to how many years ago it was, you know, a thousand, a million a billion, we can still find uh, in the rock record, we can find recognizable fossils going back to about 550 million years ago that look like animals and plants. As you go back beyond that, you don't have a lot of multicellular things swimming around. And um, what was there was pretty much soft-bodied, and so they didn't do a great job of, of leaving fossils for us. 
But but the rock record continues mm. to Shame show. Shame on them. Shame on them. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, they, just they could have saved us a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Come on, nature. <laughs> yeah. Well, so as you keep on going back, though, um, you can still find microfossils uh, mm. as you as you dissect the rocks and look at them under electron microscopes, and then you can see very clear evidence of of, um, of structures that look like bacteria. And you can even tell what kinds of bacteria they were based on the chemistry of the rocks that they're in, what kind of chemical signatures they've left behind, mm-hmm. um, and even their sizes and shapes sometimes. So one billion years ago, two billion years ago, three billion years ago. Now, there are just fewer and fewer rocks from those times. So the rock record of life gets sparser and sparser. But we can still take it back to around three and a half billion years. And then the rock record kind of peters out. Uh, depending on which rocks you believe and don't believe, the oldest microfossil is between three and a half and three point eight billion years ago. Um, but um, so we know that life has been around for at least that long. Now, from the other end, we know there was no Earth five billion years ago. <laughs> And the solar system was just trying to get going a little bit after that. And then um, most of the solar system came into existence somewhere around 4.7, 4.6. Now we're talking about, you know, 4.5. Somewhere along about that time, and I get my numbers wrong, uh, a, a great big body about the size of Mars slammed into the young Earth and spewed out part of the mantle. And that condensed and became our moon. Well, when you, when you melt most of the mantle, there's a really good chance that if any life had tried to get started before that, it may or may not have survived. So being hit by a Mars-sized object is bad for life. Then. It is bad for life. <laughs> yes. um, Noted. Exactly how bad it is, is argued about. Mm-hmm. And there are those who say it may not have been a completely sterilizing event. That would seem bad, uh, just instinctively. <laughs> Distinctly bad, yes. Um, I guess what about birds? Like, you know, birds are dinosaurs. But and yeah, we're before we're, that. We're, yeah. we're going to back we're up way a little bit before yeah. the birds and dinosaurs. But still, there's some very impressive bacteria. Exactly. So. It's the impressive bacteria are uh, the ones that are maybe could have survived mm-hmm. uh, Ones that would currently live, you know, there, there, are, there are organisms now that live in boiling acid in, oh in Yellowstone, for example. They don't infect us because we are not boiling acid. <laughs> we are far too cold for them. Oh, okay. yeah, so they, they really they only like boiling acid. They only so. like boiling acid, right? Okay, but, well, good for them. But <laughs> then if, if they are currently on the surface and then, and then they were to find their way down to some deep ocean niche that on this boiled earth would have would have still been you know wet and <laughs> uh, just really hot but not gone. You know, that's one of the one of the one of the theories about how life evolved after it got going. But right. constraining it, it's really hard to pin it down as to whether you know life had to have started no farther back than some number. Um, the the most enthusiastic people push it back to around 4.4 billion years ago, and 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 the, uh, the more curmudgeons say about 3.9. Well, we know that by 3.8 we had life, so mm-hmm. you've got 
between 100 million years and 500 million years during which you had to invent life. And then the question is, how long did it take? Mm-hmm. Does it take a minute, to take a day, a week, a year, a thousand years, a million years? Um, and we don't know the answer to that. But a hundred million years is sort of like the low end of the window opportunity that, that, that people talk about. Wow. Oh, that's very... It's still like an unfathomable amount yeah. of time. Yes. <laughs> but uh, understanding better how DNA and RNA work just in the universe and physical reality would certainly help us to... Absolutely. Narrow down a few of those questions, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Never mind. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's actually, that's very true. Um, and there are those who would say knowing how RNA works and thinking that you have to have high temperatures, uh, their response to that is therefore no RNA. That you could not have started with RNA because RNA as a chemical species does not survive under those conditions. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And there are others who say, no, 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 because RNA does not survive under those conditions, those are the wrong conditions to be thinking about. <laughs> hmm. And uh, it, it was not during the boiling times. It was just after the boiling times, after, after it had cooled down a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have a question from one of our listeners. Thank Wonderful. you for um, thank you for putting that question. And, and what they ask is, what would be the significance of finding life on Mars or other planets? Ah. Okay, so Mars is a special thing. In fact, anything within our solar system is a little bit special. If you found life, if we found life on Mars, and you told me nothing else besides that, we have found life on Mars, uh, even if you assume that it did not arrive there with the, with, you know, like the Mars Pathfinder and the various rovers and things, then... Uh, you know that people did not put it there. What does it really mean? It, it could mean one of two things. It could mean that life arose on Mars and totally independent of life arising on Earth, two different origins of life events. Here's another possibility, that life arose on Earth first. Um, comets, asteroids, meteorites are always hitting Earth and knocking rocks up into the air, and every once in a while they'll knock one so high up into the air that it leaves the Earth orbit. And some of those will make it out to other planets. Hmm. So it's entirely possible that you could have a rock in a little slimy pool on on Earth with some bacteria Hmm. growing on it. The meteorite hits right exactly there, launches that ooze out into space, and it carries with it some, some bacteria. They float around for a few million years and land on Mars, which at that time uh, was wet had some water, mm-hmm, had a little mm-hmm. bit of an atmosphere, and, and took off, and they started growing. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that could happen. Just, uh, so it's, uh, uh, first thing that it could mean is separate origins. Mm-hmm. Second thing it could mean is Earth origin, rocks fly from Earth to Mars. Mm-hmm. Now, we contaminated Mars. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now here's the other one. Life could have originated only in one of the two planets, on Mars, and then a rock hits the Mars uh, ooze pool, sends rocks out into space, and then they come to Earth. Mm. Now I'm going to ask you a question, since you're all scientists. Which one do you think is more likely? If I told you only one of these two planets gave rise to life, and both of them had life at one point because of swapping spit back and forth, uh, of sending rocks from one to the other, which direction is more likely? Is it more likely that we are Martians 
Hmm. Or is it more likely that the Martians are Earth people? I don't know which way rocks normally go. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to guess that if and this is on a big if that both planets were confirmed to have life at some point. Right. Then Mars would be the more likely source. More the, yes. the more likely source. Yes. Because That's exactly right. A giant Mars-sized object never slammed into Mars as far as we know. Well, okay. Or is that a wrong no, reason that, for being? That's not the reason I would have used. Huh. I would have used Madeline's reason, which is which way do rocks go? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they go down, right? They go down. And um, uh, if they go you, towards the sun. And so towards the sun is easier than away from the sun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, leaving Mars orbit is much easier than leaving Earth orbit. So because a, it's smaller. Because it's much smaller. Okay. And so um, a meteorite that hits the Earth and knocks rocks into space uh, have to hit the Earth with so much of a force that they tend to shock the rocks and transiently melt them. Oh. Um, if it has enough energy to get out, I mean, you have to impart that energy all in one smack. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a pretty brutal thing to do. Uh, it ends up being about 12 and a half meters per second. No, kilometers per second. Oh. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a little bit. Of, whereas leaving Mars orbit is, um, you impart about five kilometers per second uh, into it which um, is a lot less brutal. Wow. Well, I grew up watching Star Trek, and I always wanted to grow up and be an alien, and now you've given me hope that this is actually possible. <laughs> you, you, you've already accomplished your life goal. <laughs> you've got it, Adam. Now, yeah. now you, but Adam, you asked, you asked the question exactly the right way at the beginning. If it were confirmed that both planets had life at some point, and if it were believed that life arose in only one of those two places then the more probable place would have been Mars as, mm -hmm. the, as, the, as the sole source. Now, how would you know whether, whether Mars life and Earth life have a common origin or if they're totally independent of each other? Part of it would be how different they are. Right. I mean, if they, if they both use DNA and RNA and proteins and they mm -hmm. both have similar biochemical reactions and, and, and even more so if you can kind of recognize some of the organisms, I think it's really hard to argue that you can put all those pieces together at random, completely independently of each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In such a close proximity, especially. What? Like, if, if it were to happen, it could happen way far away, just randomly. Right. But so yeah, close so together. So you're trying to weigh two things, right? So one of them is, is, is this seemingly impossibly uh, 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 improbable thing of having exactly the same kind of life in two different places the, versus a different explanation, which is, you know, you're just throwing rocks at each other, um, which seems a lot easier to accomplish. So, so following up on that, how would we know that if life was on Earth, on Mars, or if we discover life on Mars, how would we say that is life? <laughs> even, even if it looks like so different from... Right. From ours, because we're looking at a specific type of life, right. but what about if, if it's considered life in Mars, but to us, it's not? Well, the easiest way would be if it comes up, if it just walks up to us and starts talking to us, you know, that, that would be the easiest. You know, <laughs> okay, sort of, okay, you know, well, that makes sense. A babble fish around his neck mm -hmm. or maybe a universal translator or something. Yeah. Or maybe Adam's cousin or something. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, I think he'll buy. We'll go longer. Yeah. So, okay, that'd be the easiest way. But barring that, what are you going to do? Um, so you start looking for chemical reactions that 
we would normally use a biological process to explain. Um, now, uh, the Viking mission did this uh, a, a bunch of years ago where they scooped up some soil, added some water to it, shine, uh, sh uh, um, uh, gave it some light, and asked whether it could photosynthesize or whether it could uh, metabolize uh, some glucose and turn it in, into carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. um, it turned out that chemical reaction did happen, and there was some thought at one point that that was evidence of life. And then they realized, oh, wait a minute, there are some non-biological processes that can do the same chemistry because oh. uh, we're asking it to metabolize the glucose, the sugar, mm -hmm. um, the way that we would, mm -hmm. which is to have it react with oxygen. It's an oxidizing reaction for the sugar. Well, it turns out that the rocks that are on the surface of Mars are really good at oxidizing things. Mm -hmm. And so it's... it's it's uh, it's more like adding Clorox to your to your to your sugar. I mean, it's going to do an oxidizing reaction, <laughs> but it's not life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you look for things you that you're used to recognizing, and you try to rule out all alternatives. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an example: we have in our atmosphere, we have methane that is produced by one set of microbes, and we have oxygen, which is produced by uh, photosynthesizing things, and we have a sun that does a very good job of destroying oxygen. If we killed all photosynthesis and, um, and just let the earth you know, cook along for a while, in about 200 million years, um, the molecular oxygen, <clears throat> I just about said the wrong thing. Strike that last part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there, there are actually, uh, um, uh, so let me re rephrase that. Uh, we have oxygen and methane in our atmospheres produced by mm -hmm. two different kinds of, of biological processes. And those two would normally react with each other and destroy the which, uh, uh, whichever one is in less uh, lesser supply. Mm -hmm. Because we have both, that's considered a chemical disequilibrium. Mm -hmm. And if you have a, a, a chemical disequilibrium in your atmosphere... Um, that is taken as evidence that uh, there are things going on that are out of... Uh, uh, they're not just sitting still. It's not just a warm little pond sitting there, you know, being warm. It's doing things. Mm -hmm. And figuring out how to recognize which of those signatures represent life mm -hmm. and which ones represent non-life is one of NASA's biggest questions right now. Mm. And you get... You get some people getting a little bit too enthusiastic about claiming this absolutely means this. You know, if you mm -hmm. find if you find oxygen, it necessarily means there is water on the planet. If you find something else, it necessarily means this other thing. And then if you think about it long and hard, sometimes you can come up with other ways to get there. And that's our big challenge is to not get too far ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. It kind of illustrates the, the importance of disproving other people. The whole point of science. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap up with one last question. Please. For all those future scientists that are interested in getting into the origin of life science. <laughs> right. Is there any advice you have for them? Oh, my goodness. Uh, or just any scientist. Yeah, or well, future yeah. scientists. You know, that's what it boils down to. Um, there are opportunities in science... Um, 
you know, basically what it boils down to is do the best you can in every aspect of your studies that you can, whether it's the science or even the non-science. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing how every time I have decided at one point in my classes, I'm not going to need this. <laughs> Lo and behold, a few years later, I wish I had paid more attention to that thing uh, yeah. because uh, um, I, I actually decided as an undergraduate that I didn't, didn't need to understand fluorescence. Uh, okay, so you know, you know, you know those. You see, everybody in the room here is a scientist, and they all know how much we make use of fluorescence now. And so, um, well, so obviously that was that was a mistake, wasn't it? Um, so you'd be surprised how things come back to you. Just pay attention to everything. Try to find some joy in everything that you can. But even the non-science courses as well. Uh, it's extremely mm, undervalued how important it is to write clearly mm-hmm. and to be able to, frankly, to spell things and punctuate things so that your writing speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly, if, if you focus a lot on precise and accurate writing, I think it will carry over into a lot of other fields. So I'm going to put a big plug out to all the English teachers out there. <laughs> all right. Yes. Well, thank you for being with us, Dr. Thank Burke. You. This was, it kind of blew my mind. I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. Um, we're going to go on a short break and mm-hmm. then we'll be back. You're listening to the Big Electron on KCU 88.1 FM. All right, welcome back to the Big Electron here, KCU 88.1 FM. Thanks for, for ah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I was talking, getting ahead of myself. Um, thanks for listening. It's it's uh, Origin of Life, Mother's Day, Mom's Gift, Life, and uh, some questionable advice. <laughs> yes. Sometimes. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the advice, um, some advice my mother has given me growing up. Um, I'm going to say lies my mother told me growing up. <laughs> I would like to hereby apologize to my mother for participating in this. Episode. I would like my mother to apologize to me for this life. Oh, goodness. And oh, with that, goodness. And, Family drama. And with that, we want to say happy Mother's Day yeah. to your mama. Yeah. yeah, happy Mother's Day, mom. I want to hear this. So um, growing up, my, my family's Armenian. Okay. And growing up, my mother always told me that before a test, if I want to do well in the test, I have to eat lentils. That sounds delicious. Now, it definitely does. Now that sounds delicious, but as a child, this was torture. <laughs> and I hated lentils. And before tests, I was told, if you want to do well, you should eat lentils. And so now as an adult and a scientist, I, of course, um, looked Have into it. Have to prove it. your mother wrong. <laughs> I looked into it. And um, lentils and all beans, really, mm-hmm. are a good source of protein. And yes, protein is good. Um, it's for your brain. For your brain, it's considered uh-huh. brain food. However, eating lentils before the night before a test will not help me. <laughs> I don't know. Test. I it mean, it got you here, right? You're in grad school now, so maybe. It yeah, sounds but I'm like in you got grad a partial school now. <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna say that um, I was completely lied to. It is a it is a brain food, but I could have just as easily had steak. And it would have been just as much of a benefit <laughs> and much more delicious. That sounds that sounds a little bit like you're 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 critiquing the the method, but not the underlying reasoning behind Absolutely. it. Absolutely, it is. Uh, there is the science there. You could just as easily um, eat nuts. Eating nuts during a test is um, 
uh, going to help you. And there are certain fruits, especially if they're high in antioxidants um, and berries are a really good one for, ah, for your brain. Nice. Those are good brain food. Hmm. Science. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, when I was thinking about my mom and advice and everything, um, my family is from a farm and we live in the middle of a field. I mean, not in the middle of a field. <laughs> there's a road and stuff. Like a novel waiting to start. <laughs> but there's fields all around us. And so my mom always said, do not go in the corn fields because corn grows really tall. And like when you're a kid, it's, you know, way taller than you. Mm -hmm. And so she was just sure that I would go into a cornfield and get lost and get dizzy and just wander around for days and die. And <laughs> I was insulted by this because I don't know if you know Kansas, but everything ends up being in giant squares and the corn is planted in a straight line. Uh -huh. So you really just walk in a straight line and then you find a road and then you take the square and then you're home. And it's really not that bad. So, but then, so that's geometry, really. Yeah, that's the connection yeah, yeah. There. So, um, but then apparently there's this thing called spatial displacement. Dis okay. Spatial displacement. So it's a real thing and it yeah. could happen in theory. So thanks yeah. for not letting me die in a cornfield, mom. <laughs> Just so, real quick. Spatial displacement comes up a lot with pilots ah. when they're in a cloud for the first time. Oh. Mm -hmm. Just wow. get disoriented. So, so far we have two examples of, of lies our mothers told us that turned out not to entirely be lies. And I'm not sure I'm going to help any uh, in this case because I have yet another example of partial uh, of a partial lie and partial truth, which is uh, related to drinking milk when you're congested in your in your nose. So like if you have a cold or something, yeah. I was told uh, don't drink milk in that situation because it'll just make it worse. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it'll make you feel worse or it mm -hmm. might. It'll actually make it feel thicker, but it does not actually increase the amount of mucus or goo that goes on <laughs> inside your head in this situation. So it's Technically speaking, wrong. Sorry, Mom. It's it's actually will not make your nose stuffier. It will just make you feel like it's stuffier, which is it's really the bad important enough, part. and that's kind of the important thing. So I, I suppose I will say thank you for this advice. But um, mostly I just find this interesting in the sense of um, there have been studies done on this exact thing because people mm. want to know. Inquiring minds <laughs> demand the truth about this. So there have been studies done over a long period of time. Especially alien uh, minds. Such alien as minds like myself. <laughs> um, so, um, but there were studies done as, as early as 1990 when, when I will point out I would have been eight years old. So we could have known this. Uh, <laughs> um, so um, that, that it were elaborately set up, you know, peer-reviewed scientific articles talking about um, having a cold. These people were deliberately exposed to a type of rhinovirus, that is the common cold. Bummer. And yeah, yeah. these were volunteers though, so they, they apparently knew what they were getting into. Uh, and then they were, over the following 10 days, um, given uh, variable amounts of milk to drink, anywhere between zero and 11 glasses of milk oh. a day. Oh my gosh. Which would, it, for me, make me sick anyway, I'm positive. <laughs> but, um, you know, they found no correlation between how much mucus you had uh, and um, and the amount of milk you drank. Wow. <laughs> I will point out that this, this study is one that I found linked to um, by the um, California Dairy Farmers Association, <laughs> which, uh, or, I'm sorry, dairy. dairy Council of California, forgive me. Um, and I would like to point uh, out the big dairy has clearly got a stake in how this turns out. 
I will also point out that my mother's mother is a dairy farmer in California, oh. and that Full I feel disclosure. there may be some maybe some drama going on in this way. So I'd like to say Happy Mother's Day to my mom and to her mom also, oh. who is a California dairy farmer who no doubt would be opposed to telling kids to drink less milk uh, for for completely uh, business related reasons. reasons. So <laughs> that is all I got. Awesome. So I'll close this up with something that uh, my mother and maybe uh, some of your mothers do as well. And it was when you got a cold as a child, uh, they would make you uh, embrace the smells of Bic's Vapor Rub. Right, they would rub it on your chest and put it on your nose and be like, "Mom, I can't breathe." Like, it's good for you, um, but technically, it's not. A, eh, well, it's good, but it's. I mean, still, it's still sells, and you know, and some people still still swear by it. So, Vicks Vapor Room was. Um, We're Whitewater Ramble. <laughs> You're listening to 88.1 KCOU Columbia. Yeah. All right. Um, so, <laughs> Vicks Vapor Rub was uh, originally started in 1905, and it was called the Vicks Magic Croup Solve. Oh, sounds convincing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and, and the reason why it became so popular, it's so funny, uh, it became so popular because in 1918, mm -hmm. there was a flu epidemic, and, you know, they, they did really good marketing, and sales went up. From 900,000 to 2.9 million. Wow. That year. So, you know, that's, especially back in 1918, it was, you know, yeah. that's a, a, a lot, lot of, of money. money. It's a lot of money. So, um, some people started uh, getting concerned about it. And actually, in 1983, FDA um, changed the, the ingredient, not the ingredient list, but the limit of oh. how much of certain... Um, ingredients can be on Vicks Vapor Rub. And the, the main concern is camphor. Um, and there was a camphor, you know, it's it's been used as, as to promote, um, to fight colds and opening mm -hmm. stuffy noses. But however, camphor itself is very toxic. Mm -hmm. Eating or drinking as little as five milliliters of oil can kill a child. Oh, wow. wow. So in 1983, the FDA said that camphor-containing products such as Vicks Vapor Rub uh, could not contain more than 11% of concentration of that substance. Uh, right now, Vicks Paper Rub has no less than 4.8%. So it's way below the limit. So it works, FDA. but they limited the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they limited the good stuff. And as, as Adam mentioned, as far as the milk, um, there's also been studies that said, if you put it on a stuffy nose, no, child cannot breathe so it's not that it will open up the stomach <laughs> but you know it is what it is it i guess it's tradition and the mothers like like to keep it up so maybe it's like a, i was tortured so i must torture my child <laughs> sort of thing maybe or maybe you know mama knows best who knows so sounds like this has been converted into from lies our mothers told us to half truths. Yeah. Half truths, that, yeah. but gradually saying, I guess they were right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we'll close up on our show. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Big Electron on KCU eighty-eight point one FM.